Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Big Sister Hotline, how can we help? Hello, guys, gals, and non-binary pals. This is me, Clementine Ford, host of the Big Sister Hotline. And if you're listening to this, it means you are one of my patrons who gets this very special bonus episode of the hotline. Um, We won't actually be answering listener questions today in this episode, but I am using this opportunity to go back to one of the guests that I've had on the show before and have a more in-depth conversation about masculinity, about life, about socialization, and about his place in the world as a man navigating his way through masculinity in a feminist way. So please, please welcome back Teddy Dunn to the hotline. Hello, Teddy. Hello there. It's so lovely to be back, home away from home. Well, it's just so nice to be able to speak to people in these uh, Zoom times. <laughs> I'm so sick of screens. I can't tell you. My whole uh, life is a, is a screen. It's a nightmare. Occasionally, I think that perhaps it would be better. Um, and I know that everyone's saying, oh, how thankfully, you know, we're in 2020 and we can, you know, do things on the internet. And I don't know. It depends on the day. Some days I'm very grateful for it. And then other days I think I would actually prefer a courier on a bicycle you know, to bring me a file with the work I have to do for the day. And then I just do that and I don't have to call into meetings and so on um, all the time. Preferably that cyclist would also bring whiskey or brandy or something uh, at the same time, because in these times that I'm thinking of, uh, that was appropriate in the workplace to drink uh, to drink brandy at 11 a.m. It's not appropriate now? <laughs> well, I guess nobody knows that we're doing it now. <laughs> I wish someone would tell me that that was um, that was that was appropriate. I don't think anyone's going to actually say that. I saw this great tweet yesterday, which said, "Me in 2019 to my neighbours. Oh, don't mind all these bottles. I'm not an alcoholic. I just had a party. Me in 2020. Don't mind all these bottles. I didn't have a party. I'm just an alcoholic." <laughs> which just feels- very sadly like an attack on my life right now. I went for a very long period, very long, it was probably about six weeks. Uh, It was pretty long for me actually, but a long period where um, in the middle before stage four and just kind of before stage or bit into stage three, the, the, the second stage three, where I was not drinking during the week and I was just drinking on the weekends and I felt really proud of myself because actually I, I do drink, you know, I wouldn't say a lot, but I drink regularly. Um, and I've just slid right back down. Like it's gotten to the point now where I'm looking at, I, and I'm actually 
doing pretty fine emotionally and mental health wise. It's fine. It's just that the days are all exactly the same. So I'm finding myself looking at the wine bottle at like 4.30 and going, oh, can I have one before? Can I have one before I put the kid to bed? I do. No, I absolutely completely agree with you. I've I've found myself sort of fluctuating wildly between drinking, you know, as not insignificant, not a Mediterranean amount per night, you know, like a, <laughs> that, I learned that the healthy amount of red wine for someone to drink per day is 100 milliliters. And I was deeply offended when I learned that. And I was offended at myself for finding it out. <laughs> I just wished that I hadn't known. I was like, oh, yes, I have a glass, but my glasses are not 100 mils. I don't even know what that would look like. It wouldn't look it's like, like a glass of wine. It's literally a thimble full, a thimble full, like 100 mils. That's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. So a Coke can is 330 mils. So you're talking a third of a Coke can. Yeah, yeah, you sneeze more than that. It's offensive. It's, it's completely no. I have more than that in my hair when I come out of the shower. It's not an acceptable <laughs> amount to drink. It's not it's a not drink. A... <laughs> no, it's a portion of liquid, sure, but it's not a drink in any capacity. That's what they um, used to give pills. That's what they used to give babies to get them to sleep. <laughs> And that's all I, that's what I need. I need, I need an appropriate amount for an adult. If a baby has a hundred mils, I need an appropriate amount for an adult man to send me to sleep. That's what I need. (laughs) On that note, let's get right into it. Let's talk masculinity because, um, you know, as as some people who who listened to the episode with you um, would be aware, we have been friends for a long time and we quite, regularly discuss issues of masculinity um they would also be familiar with the fact if they've listened to that episode that you're a trans man so you have a different perspective on masculinity than you know your sort of garden variety cis dude uh which i find really interesting to kind of pour through your brain on um and what's some of the stuff that i wanted to talk about with you on this very special episode particularly Mm. your theory now you and i took a walk uh, a very sensible, socially distanced walk. I will have. I will remind everyone. It was actually the night that we went into stage four, so we were all preparing to go back to our houses at eight o'clock for the first curfew of the season, and uh, we went for a walk. And we talked about this as we did talk about many things. And one of the things that I was really fascinated by, and it made so much sense to me, but I hadn't thought about it in terms like this before, was you saying that women are afraid of men. That's a given. But what we don't talk about is the fact that men are also afraid of men. So I want to talk about that. Yeah, it was, um, I'll sort of tell the the story of how I kind of came to that understanding because I, uh, obviously I was raised as a girl um, and socialised as a girl and as a woman. And so I um, was terrified of men um, and I had sort of adapted myself to perceive men and groups of men in particular ways. And I, when I started transitioning, actually it was before I started basically uh, transitioning, so I had a lot more anxiety about what, <laughs> what the world through a man's eyes would look like or what the world would look like if, people, if the world had eyes on me that saw me as a man. Um, and I was kind of interested in what, what the differences would be. And I got it into my head for about a week that I would have to avoid 
men beating me up, like getting into fights. Um, and so I, which hasn't been an issue so far, but also I haven't really been in public since the time that I've been passing. So who knows, I could still get myself into a fight, but I kind of never got taught, if men do get taught, how not to get beaten up. Um, my training was different. So I asked my friends, I asked two of my straight cis male friends um, what they did. And they went into this really long diatribe about groups of men and how many is a dangerous group and what's the most dangerous number and what to do when you see one man and then uh, what kind of body posture you need to have and how much safer you are or how much more in danger you are if you're with women and how many women. They had this really intensive um, un understanding of how to protect themselves and it felt really resonant with how women speak about avoiding men and men's violence. And then I talked to my dad um, and because he said, something offhandedly about how he wished that he had known to, to talk to me about this stuff and teach me these things. And I said, well, what, what would you teach me? And he kind of did a similar thing, said a similar set of things as my friends. And I said, um, it sounds like you're frightened of men, Dad. <laughs> and he said, I'm not frightened of them. I'm just aware of them. And I said, well, what's the difference? My dad is a very uh, sensitive, kind, I don't, I've never known my dad to get in a fight. Um, the whole point, and actually neither of my friends, I don't think have been in fights either. I certainly have never started them and, and um, are not those kinds, you know, in inverted commas, those kinds of men, right? Um, but I, yeah, I said, it sounds like you're frightened of them. And my dad said, uh, I'm not afraid. I'm not frightened of them. I'm just aware of them. Mm. And I said, uh, that sounds very similar to how I've been living my life up until this point, actually. And all the men they described as men to be aware of and the kinds of groups were all the same. If I saw those men as someone who was socialized as a woman, I would also be fearful of them. And so what it made me start to understand is that they are, that men, it seems to me, are as frightened of the same men that we are. Um, groups of drunk men, especially smaller groups of drunk men. Um, and in fact, uh, statistically, um, men are in more danger in those cases than mm -hmm. women are um, in terms of what of something happening to them. I mean, the severity of what happens, who knows how we measure that, right? But like... But on the street, we know that the most dangerous place for a man to be is in public. And we know that the most right. dangerous place for a woman to be is in her own home. Exactly. And and yet the fear, I, I, I think the fear is the same. And I think, you know, you can talk about women's fear and I'm sure you have. And there are lots of really good sort of reasons for the patriarchy to instill that kind of fear in women. Um, but also, but also on that note, there's also really good reason for the patriarchy to instill that fear in men because it bonds exactly. them to brotherhood. 
bonds them to the action movement. It does. And it also, um, it also, I think, reinforces a kind of um, performativity of masculinity that most men wouldn't perform at any other point in time. A kind of bravado, um, chest forward kind of um, uh, impenetrability, a performance of impenetrability, whereas mm. women perform invisibility. Um, men perform visibility and um, and dominance. Um, and, and these are men who are not interested in dominating anybody. They're interested only in their own safety, but they still perform that dominance. What do men do? So from my perspective, I mean, you talk in generality, not you, but we talk in generality when we talk about the experience of women living under patriarchy and uh, the experience of being subjected to toxic masculinity and what toxic masculinity even is. And I assume that if you're listening to this podcast episode, as you are a Patreon su- subscriber, that you're familiar with the term toxic masculinity. But if you are not, toxic masculinity, uh, by my definition, refers to a perversion of masculine behaviour that is socialised and conditioned by patriarchal norms and patriarchal expectations, which weaponizes masculinity to cause harm against other people and harm against men. Um simply put. Uh, And there are men who, as you point out, maybe some of those men are able to perform that masculinity, but a lot of them are not able to perform it. And so they, they experience in a different way, they experience that same sense of exposure that women do under the gaze, under the male gaze and under the, under the, the possibility or the threat of harm being done to them. And that harm may be experienced in the street, but it may also be experienced in social environments. Men's failure to perform masculinity in a certain way will cause the pack to turn on them. And this is kind of what I was getting at before when I said that um, patriarchy requires this of men in order to pledge allegiance to the brotherhood because patriarchy needs men to be bonded to one another in order for it to survive and it needs women to be separated from each other in order for it to survive and that's the two tricks that it plays on all of us i mean obviously Mm. i'm speaking in a very clear binary there but the patriarchy also believes in a binary um and values Mm. a binary um and so for the men who who don't feel able to or desiring of or willing to perform that kind of masculinity. I think that the level of fear that they experience is not just of physical retaliation but of like, well, where do I belong? Mm. Exactly. I mean, I think um, I think there's very little wiggle room for men not to perform any kind of masculinity. Um and I think you're right. There are certain men who can't perform that particular brand of toxic masculinity. Um, and, you know, with, I'm thinking about queer men and I'm thinking, you know, visibly queer men. I'm thinking about men from particular racial groups um, as well, where they're not kind of included in the, as you say, in the, in the brotherhood. Um, but I also think there's there's something that something you said that made me think of something else, which is about a and I can't exactly remember where I heard this story, but I, so we'll talk about it in a in a as a phenomenon. But that the the idea uh, that men are protecting one another from the patriarchy is partly what makes them 
responded. I mm. think sometimes it can be really um, part. I think sometimes what's difficult in conversations like these is it sounds as though um, men and when we talk about women and how they experience patriarchy um, in in those cases, it's slightly separate, but even still, that people can't see um, something that's glaringly obvious. What's so good about patriarchy and why it's worked so well is that there are really good reasons, human reasons, um, for people to engage with it um, that are uh, where the where the patriarchy is kind of hidden. So, for example, you might have a group of boys or men um, where one boy or man is about to break out of toxic masculinity, say something that's feminine or do something that's risky in some kind of way, and that the men around him, we kind of are used to the story of them punishing him, but a lot of the time they also warn him. It's a protective measure. In the same way that you would have, you know, um, women teach their girls to be fearful on the street, which is a tool of patriarchy, right? Women's fear is a, tier, is a tool of patriarchy as much as um, the threat of violence is, right? Yeah. Both of them are in the same way that men's fear um, is a tool of the patriarchy and their fear for one another is also what what bonds them so that they they protect each other when they're performing toxic masculinity yes but they also protect one another when they're doing something vulnerable and going do you really want to do that in front of x or do you really want to do that when you know what the ramifications will be and people are gonna not us necessarily although sometimes them but but people are going to call you a fag or people are going to say you know, so there, there is actually... The don't rock the boat not, mentality. That's right. And I actually think, I think that's much more insidious because um, I've noticed that, you know, when I started asking men for advice um, about things and they, and they would teach me these things and I would say, because I'm a feminist and I've lived as a woman where I was like, I shouldn't have to be afraid on the street. Yeah, I know. It's awful, isn't it? Terrible when a man especially. <laughs> <laughs> um, next, I'll just break out the, you know, ukulele and, you know. Try and... Oh, Jack Johnson. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> John Mayer. <laughs> um, but... Um, because I lived as a feminist for such a long time and I had such criticism over how women had to be fearful, when men would tell me that they were afraid, I was like, this is fucking awful that you have to live this way. Mm. Why do you have to live this way? I'm not going to do that. <laughs> and, they, and they were shocked. This is interesting that you say that men told you that. I mean, I've only ever had that experience of men saying it in a defensive derailing way so if women are talking about the fear that we experience on the street if we're saying like hey dudes can you not fucking cat call us on the street because a it's really gross and creepy but b it makes it so much more if you're all insisting that you're out there like oh it's just a joke or it's just a compliment you know like get over it okay fine if that's true which it's not true because the the motive obviously is to make the woman feel uncomfortable no one has ever experienced a cat call and gone you know what, I think I'm going to marry that man. 
I think I am going to marry that man. How did you, how did you guys? Diary. Well, he yelled at me out of a car window, show me your tits and sit on my face. And I went, <laughs> um, so obviously the motive is to make women feel uncomfortable, but if, even, even if you could accept, okay, look, you think that you're complimenting them. We are telling you it makes us uncomfortable. And we're also telling you that it makes it so much more difficult to identify when a man is actually a threat to us. So if you care, if you truly care about women's safety, like you all claim to, cut the bullshit so that if men do behave to, like us towards this on the street, we can go, well, that's clearly a bad guy because genuinely good guys actually do not do this anymore. Um, so the the idea that so the only time i've ever heard men use that argument of or men reveal that you know that well it's like that for men too is in this really defensive way and i suppose if i'm being generous of course that's part of it that they they don't feel able to be vulnerable the immediate impulse that they have is to feel defensive because they feel targeted whereas what i find interesting you know in talking about this with you is that we can sit there and say how much more fucking liberating and empowering would it be if when a man challenged a woman on the way that she felt, we could turn around and say, cool, can you tell me, have you ever felt afraid of a man on, a, on the street? And as I said to you a couple of weeks ago when we had this conversation, if they say no, they're either extremely lucky and have basically lived their life in an entire bubble or they're lying. And if we could actually get to that honest conversation where we said, just be honest and let me know if you've ever felt afraid of men on the street. And if they could say, yeah, okay, I have. I felt afraid of drunk men. I felt afraid that they're going to attack me. Okay, yes, let's talk about that. What is that? Because that's it's not us saying that men themselves are bad or frightening or violent. It's us saying that masculinity has been given this power that is threatening to so many people and men feel it and women feel it. So let's solve it. I think I think part of the issue is that um, I think you're exactly right that that the it would be it would be revolutionary and I think um, that's what I'm trying to do with the men who are brave enough to say this to me to because I've now started asking men queer men of course are very willing to say that they're frightened of men. Um, it's harder for straight men because they're supposed to they're supposed to be those men um mm. and so they they don't have a sense of how or to protect the people they love from those men exactly they they are inherently linked in a kind of um they're 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 trapped in the idea of themselves in a way right because the they they don't have a they don't have another position to occupy. There, that doesn't exist. There is no model of masculinity for straight men that that doesn't include all of them. I don't mm. think. And so that they, of course, that's that's a generalization. And all you know, all straight men are, and uh, straight cis men are incredibly different and diverse. And there are many of them that are very very gentle and do feel like they have to protect, or don't, or just don't engage with it at all but I don't think they have the vocabulary I describe it as consciousness raising I think that what needs to happen with masculinity is what happened with femininity in the first wave of feminism which is to talk about these things the things that are oppressive to them um, but I I really would love it if men in the next 
decade to be, you know, generous. I think that it could happen before that. But if men were able to start saying it, and it would be a revolution if they were to do it in terms of talking about safety on the street, if they said um, when they heard women speak about their fear of men, that they would say, I too am afraid. I, I think that would change the conversation. And not say it in a competitive way. We've all got it bad, you know. But, yes, no. I agree. Like, change the conversation if they said, I feel that too in a different way and mm-hmm. none of it's okay. Yeah. Um, I, I was reading an article the other day. It was published three days ago in The Guardian and or three days as of the time of this recording, which is uh, Tuesday the 18th of August. Um, but the article was about a young footballer who was punched um, in New South Wales. He was 20 years old and he was punched, he was assaulted brutally by a teammate because he called out racism and the teammate had used racist slurs to describe some of their uh, opposing players, I think, um, and he called it out. He said stop it basically, like was pretty mild about it from what I can tell, not that that makes a difference. And the guy who was 12 years older than him. So his the, the victim of this, the survivor of this was a young man named Angus Chance and he was 20 years old and he was assaulted by his then teammate Nathan Bodenhaas in a one-punch attack. Um, and I'm just reading from the Guardian piece here. According to police facts of the case, Chance told Bodenhaas to, quote, stop being fucking racist, end quote, after the then 34-year-old yelled expletive-laden abuse at three Japanese players trialling with their Dulwich Hill football club in Sydney's inner west. Bodenhaas responded with words to the effect of, quote, racist, I'll come fix you up in a second, before Chance replied, grow up, stop being racist, according to the police facts. Bodenhaas then, quote, walked aggressively towards Chance and pushed him, causing him to stumble backward. As Chance was regaining his balance, Bodenhaas punched him in the jaw. So the assault caused this young footballer, 20 years old, still a boy, to suffer a seizure. It left him with a broken jaw and dislodged teeth. He had to undergo facial reconstruction and has very understandably suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder, anxiety and depression since the attack. He spent months in hospital. And I read that and, you know, clear and blatant fucking example of toxic masculinity right there, that the shame that, uh, and I'm not, when I use the word shame, I don't mean, oh, let's feel sorry for him because he felt ashamed. But this is, I think, you know, Jess Hill talks about this, that shame is a powerful motivator for men in particular to use violence to attack the people who they feel have been the root cause of that shame. And in this situation, it seems clear that the 34-year-old was saying, well, I, well, don't expose me, you know, don't make me feel ashamed and um, resorted to the violence that was, you know, that he easily was able to access and put this young boy in the hospital. And I, you know, I read that and I thought, what, what am I supposed to do? Speaking from a very personal perspective, what am I supposed to do raising a son and saying to him, you need to call out wrong when you see it. You need to call out racism. You need to be a good bystander because the reality is that, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't teach kids to be good bystanders but this is the problem that we're facing it's not just about being the bystander it's about it's that fear it's the retaliation in in exactly the same way that girls and women have uh, a particular prescribed set of fears that have been instilled in us 
with good reason at the hands of men and patriarchy. Those same fears play out all the time with men. That When I read that and when I thought about my son, I thought, yeah, I get it now why someone would choose to stay, stay silent. And it's not just about saving face in front of their teammates, but it could be about, I don't want to be fucking put in the hospital. Exactly. I think sometimes we have to presume um, that men, it's it's hard, right? You know, we have to examine it, but that men who don't do anything in inverted commas, um, it's not that we give them a pass, but I think we do also need to understand, as you say, that there are also very legitimate fears that the patriarchy has instilled in men and reinforces much, much earlier in men than it does in women. Um, it starts instilling that when they are small, small children. Um, the fear that patriarchy instills in, in women and girls happens a lot later. The, there's studies um, to that effect, essentially saying that you know, the, the sort of halving of the self that happens um, for both We've genders. Yeah, this is Terry Wilson's ideas. That's right. you know, that, and I mentioned this on the most recent episode of Big Sister Hotline as well, that the psychologist Terry Real, as you say, talks about the halving of the selves and his, his motivation is to rejoin the two halves so that we can all become whole humans. Mm-hmm. But that, you know, the the that for he he says that as you say that for girls this installation of shame occurs around or the halving of the self occurs around 11 12 which rings true for me um but for boys which surprised me for boys it's as you say 3 or 4 yeah and that's my son's turned 4 so that is and actually he's already started and it's really weird to know where it comes from because He's not in childcare at the moment and hasn't been for months. He's just just spends time with me and his dad um, in separate houses, but his dad is not a hyper-masculine alpha kind of dude at all. Like he's very, um, you know, yeah, he's just, he's not like that. Um, and And I trust that he's not like that. It's not like he's secretly like that and I just don't know. Like he just genuinely is not like that. And... I just don't know where it's he's he's beginning to exhibit this these signs of sort of um worry I suppose that he he will be perceived in, to be behaving in a certain way or you know he, he and I might be singing together uh, the other night we were singing and his dad was coming to pick him up and he suddenly got very agitated and was like no stop stop singing daddy will hear us and I was like well what's wrong if daddy hears us singing and he said, he sort of, I couldn't really get what the problem was, but he was, he said, oh, we'll make him feel bad or make him feel weird because he's a man. And I said, oh, well, that, that doesn't make any sense. And I messaged his dad about it afterwards and I said, can you, I, I'm not saying that you make him feel this way, but can you give me some insight into what he might be talking about? And he said that he talked to him and he kind of got the same sort of, thing about him, thing from him, he said, oh, well, men don't sing. And, you know, his dad said to him, well, that's silly. We sing together all the time. You know, his dad used to be in bands and obviously we know men sing. So I don't know where it's coming from. Like it's it's, it's just in the ether. It's not, he doesn't even watch a lot of 
screen stuff that I'm not supervising. So it's not like it's 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 so bizarre. It's real and it makes you feel incredibly powerless to see it play out because I don't know how to stop the train. Well, I think the thing is that we 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 can't like in an individual level we can't. You know, we 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 really do need to have a systematic um approach to it and I think we really need to engage uh we need to engage men who um basically I I've said this for a while and I think it's I think it's true that we need to equip men with the capacity to analyze gender on masculinity um in a way that's as kind of um uh obvious and um in a way that that allows them tools to dismantle it because it's so deeply ingrained in in men this uh one man i was speaking to about this fear said that it was embarrassing for him to admit it um even to me and like i think that that's part of it is that it's embarrassing and it's scary it's frightening <laughs> to admit that you have a whole human self underneath your masculinity because those parts of of men oftentimes have been so badly punished by society um that to reopen them again is incredibly vulnerable it takes a lot of courage that's the kind of courage we need to be encouraging in men and i think that the way to do that partly is to when we look at stories like that story you you've described about those two football players there are two men in that in that story um there is a man who is who is trying to stand up for justice and kindness um, against someone, it sounds like more powerful than him, at his own risk. That is courageous. That's a heroic thing to do. Um, and then there's the man who was, you know, who was uh, shame-filled and um, reactionary and violent. Um, and I think to hold both of those men up in that story is really important to not just look at the man and go, oh, these fucking football players, you know, because actually they're both football players. Um, they're both in exactly the same situation and one of them chose one thing and one of them chose another. And I think um, we're often very quick to, um, to condemn, which is right, you know, to condemn the violence. But I think also what I notice in that story is that this this man, this twenty year old man, did an incredibly frightening thing to do, um, and it, and he paid for it much more than I think most of society would like for him to. I don't think we want that to happen to people who say, "Can you not be a racist prick?" <laughs> like I don't think we want them to then have to go and have facial reconstructive surgery. You know, it's interesting because when you um, in looking at it from how – so if men abuse women online, there's always some, like, group of people that will line up to defend those men from having to experience any consequences. Um, if men sort of, you know, get a bit argy-bargy uh, – well, I thought it was interesting that, like, a couple of weekends ago I was – I put some Instagram stories up about um, 
uh, Mabia Chol, who was, you know, it's tricky to talk about because he's obviously come out and said that he is fine with it, but I also think that you have to deal with, you have to accept the fact that if you are marginalised by uh, racism or gender or whatever it might be, that if you experience a power imbalance because of that, that it makes it very difficult to speak out against the power that is exploiting you. So Mabia Chol is a footballer for Richmond and two of his teammates were caught on camera. There's no other way to put it, sexually assaulting him as part of like celebrations or whatever. And uh, the reaction from the public has been really fucking appalling in that, you know, some people have been, have come out firmly against it, which is great, but other people and a lot of men really protecting that male sphere have the same men exactly who would come to, say, my page and be like, well, if I'm talking about sexual violence against women, they'd say, well, it happens to men too. Why don't you care about it when it happens to men? But they only ever mean when women do it so that they can have a reciprocal hatred happening or so that they can they can sort of um, preemptively defend themselves from any kind of uh, allegations or, pre- or defend themselves from any anger that women may feel about this because they don't clearly – care about it when it happens to men because when you condemn it happening to men, if it's other men who've perpetrated it, men who they admire or men who they aspire to be like or who they aspire to be in the same circles as um, or who they just feel, as you said, that sense of fear of like not supporting them, then all of a sudden it's just a joke, get over it. You know, I had so many, saw so many men saying things like, uh, this is just what happens in locker rooms. People need to butt out, let boys be boys. And you think this is so fucking broken. This is a broken system. Um, and don't you don't you think that the um, uh, I have a feeling, and this is completely unsubstantiated. So, like, <laughs> I don't know why I feel this way, but. I really feel like they're not defending it from the point of view of a perpetrator, actually. I think that this has happened to them, probably. This kind of roughhousing they have tolerated and they have put up with. And then now everyone's going, oh, well, that's completely unacceptable. And they go, well, I've already done that. So I've already put up with that. I've already found a way of, of managing that kind of treatment. I think um, that's true in some of their circumstances, definitely. I think that for a lot of men that would be true. But, the, you know, there would be crossover with the men who've experienced it and gone on to do it themselves or had done it before they experienced it. Like that whole, like, oh, we're yeah. just men roughhousing, you know. I think that you're right in that there is a sense from some of them that if they allow it to be assault, then they have to address what they've either experienced or they have to address what they've done. But I think it's yeah. also there's also something else going on where it's this, it's almost like when it's a paranoia almost. It's like the paranoia that you feel that um, uh, say, say, I mean, look, we both live on the internet. You say you're worried that, you know, someone who you don't like might overhear your thoughts that kind of thing, you know, where you're like you're so paranoid that people might know what you're thinking and that will cancel you forever about something or other, um, mm. that it almost feels like that, that they've, there's this deep concern that if they come out against patriarchy and if they come out against the brotherhood, that they will be maligned for life. So they need to prove their loyalty. This is like men circling the wagons once again. And what I was what I was trying to get at before was that 
when people see it in very clear and simple terms, they're able to understand it in a way that is that they can't when it's sort of applied to daily activities. So if a man punches a young guy on the street and knocks him out and uh, well, well, even in this circumstance, like no one would look at that and go, that guy was in the right for punching him. No way. But they would defend someone saying racist comments on Facebook. Yes. You know, they would defend people being entitled to their opinion or what he said wasn't racist, you know, with all this kind of doubling down on stuff. So it's weird that they that there is this kind of very like clear thinking about like what is wrong when it results in violence and yet at the same time they can justify violence in lots of different ways. And I think in part that's because when we when we look at these stories we're not actually um I don't know if this is actually of, of relevance, but I, it makes me think of the um, the valorization of serial killers and mass killers, and that it doesn't need to necessarily be positive attention for that to reinforce that kind of behaviour. And I wonder if that's that's a similar phenomenon happening here, where because the focus is so much on the perpetrator of these violent acts. The men who have very little training in how to empathise with people who are different to them, which is partly why, you know, culture is so important as well and why we need to teach small boys especially how to um, admire girls as protagonists, for example, or people of colour as protagonists and identify with them because there is a real gap in their capacity to, often in their capacity to empathise with someone in a story that's not a white straight man, right? Because they've never been asked to do such a thing. Um, but I think the 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 hyper focus on the on the negative behaviour of men then makes people either, uh, yeah, double down on that that um, critique, or try and find a way of defending it because that's the that's the part of uh, the story where masculinity exists, mm. right? Whereas, in fact, I think there is an argument to be made that there is masculinity in what that boy, what that 20-year-old man did too, and that that kind of masculinity needs to be, needs to be valued and needs to be noticed and needs to, needs to be noted. That this, is, this is my argument and this is what makes it so frustrating when, you know, if I speak about toxic masculinity and the very men who I am trying to create or to be part of, I'm not going to like claim credit for it myself, the very men who I'm trying to be part of a movement to create something better for, you know, something more vulnerable and more courageous and one in which they don't feel constant, one in which they're not fucking killing themselves in such high numbers. Yeah. The same men so like gripped in their fear of accepting that there could be something, because this is the devil they know. They understand yeah. this world. They understand this dynamic and they don't understand what it means to, to upend masculinity and to take away whatever illusion of power they feel like they get from it. You know, what does that mean? And so they lash out at me and say, well, you just bloody hate all men. You think, all well, what's toxic? Why don't you talk about toxic femininity? And you're like, I'm talking about positive masculinity and how it will liberate you. Like it's... 
Why is that so terrifying to you? But of course, I don't think they don't know what that means for them. They don't know what that looks like in the world. Exactly. I don't think that there's a clear picture of what masculinity looks like um, without those toxic features. I don't. I don't think so. Um, I think there are pictures of it, um, but they are not celebrated very much. Mm. And so, and they're also, and they're not promoted. Like I, I, I really don't think um, there's much. Um, you can't be what you can't see, you know. And that's why I think you do need to. We do need to point out um, moments of positive masculinity as often as possible. Not because we need to celebrate men, but because I think men do. Men are, I believe, um, the majority of messages that they have about masculinity are negative. Are what not to be. Mm. And not what to be. It's a tricky line because so often celebrating or pointing out, you know, quote unquote positive examples of masculinity tends to be just reinforcing really, you know, saccharinely toxic versions of masculinity. Like, look at him, he's so amazing, he's with his babies or he's changing his baby's nappy. Like that's not positive masculinity, that's just fucking fatherhood. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think I think obviously that's why, you know, it needs it needs to be a revolution. It can't be what's already happened because what we're already doing is not very good. It's not working very well. One of the things as well that men need to do and that I know you're interested in doing, and it will be a hard task to pull off on mass because it requires men's commitment. But is for men to actually, you know, you mentioned earlier on in the episode about consciousness raising, I'm all for men having men's spaces. You know, when when we talk about the importance of women's spaces, there's always these men that pop up and say, oh, well, how would you feel if I, if we wanted to have men's spaces? Like, well, firstly, you have the world. But secondly, <laughs> I am all for you going and getting in your fucking shed or, you know, going and camping together or whatever it is you want to do, go on a fishing trip or just go bowling, whatever. Get together with other men, but don't make those men's spaces like, well, in order for us to experience some form of intimacy, we have to cloak it in like horrible misogyny or horrible racism or like we have to go and like fucking beat someone up together, like whatever it is. Mm. Don't do that. Sit around and actually be real with each other, you know. Have conversations about what it means to be a man. Have that male consciousness raising lean into the men's shed model where you're actually talking about your feelings and stuff and do the work, you know, go to therapy, go to therapy. Um, Mm. Because the thing is that, again, like this expectation that even people who acknowledge that there is some form of healing that needs to be done in men, from a lot of those people there's the expectation that women should be the ones, women and feminists in particular, should be the ones to lead that or to like be responsible for solving that. When that's just, mm. you can only walk someone so far down the path before they have to finish the journey alone, you know. Also, mm. we've got fucking shit to do. Absolutely. I mean, I think um, I, I think when I say we, I, I mean 
I mean, men, you know, men need to, um, need to point out positive masculinity um, and figure out what that is and what that looks Mm. like for, for ourselves. Um, And that's something that I had to do. The world we. That's right. The world we. Because I think, I think you're right. I mean, I, I do think there's a temptation to put it at the feet of feminists only because I think that feminists are uniquely equipped to think about gender, right? So um, feminists have tools that would be of use to men in <laughs> in doing those things. Um, but I, I also think that queer theorists have those tools. I think that... Um, psychologists as you suggest have those tools all the time and so you know there are other places where it comes from um and really i think the reason and i don't agree with it but i think that the reason why people think that women need to do it also is because men have been sort of declawed by the patriarchy to be able to to um often to be able to look inward and find out and do that healing because they've been um, they've been made so fearful of any feeling that isn't anger, basically because they've been punished for them all. That <laughs> then um, well, I read something interesting about this the other day, though, and I just want to interrupt that thought, which is yes, obviously men are punished for having feelings that aren't anger. Anger is the one, anger and lust the two emotions that men are allowed to have. But this thing that I read pointed out quite correctly that, you know, we say this that like men aren't allowed to have feelings and and women are, but it's not entirely the whole story because women are allowed to emote in a way that men will be, you know, emasculated for. But women women aren't, it's not like women's emotions are celebrated either. And I'm not, I'm not saying that, you're wrong. I'm just offering a different or or an extra perspective on this. How fucked the whole situation is that, like emotions in women are completely pathologized. That no one celebrates the fact that we can experience a broad range of emotions. It's just used against us. You know, well we can't get our emotions in check. We're too emotional. We're not like men. Men are logical. It's the whole thing is just so fucking messed up. Yes, it's incredibly. It's a. It's like a. It's a. It's a Greek myth, right? You know that that um, that the people who have their full spectrum of emotion are um, are envied to the point of derision. I mean, I, I really I really do think that it's it's um, it's because men are incapable of it that they then deride it, are made incapable of it. You know, like I, I it's it's you know it's like throwing someone's um, you know, it's like a little girl throwing you know, that that image of the girl throwing her um, neighbor's dollhouse down the stairs. I can't remember what film that's from, but you know, like this idea of like destroying something that you that you want, you um, want. yeah, that you envy. I mean, I I I think this is all. I think it, they are the same thing. Like the, the 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 derision of women for having emotions and the incapacity of of well, it's not even—it's not even an incapacity, but it's the disallowing of men's emotions. Are this coming from the same thing? And I think as as while we—I mean, obviously, I would feel this way, right? Because I'm trans, so I've had this—I've had both experiences, and so I I see them as 
in, inherently related. Um, but I, I really think that they are. I think that they are, they are dependent on one another. And without, you know, without sounding like a, you know, a bit woo-woo, it's like, it's kind of yoga, like a yoga, you know, where like one part of the body is also connected to the whole body. And that like every time you move something in, in femininity, masculinity will move too. And unless you you stretch them both at the same time, they'll pull each other out of shape again. They 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 are dependent on one another to be in in a way. Um, and of course, there are there are things between between those two things. Obviously, they're not they're all on a spectrum. Um, but the relationship between men's men's emotion and women's emotion. Um, if we're only working on women being proud about being emotional, that's not going to help men. And same with men. Like if men are equipped suddenly overnight, they all go to therapy, really good therapists, and they're all able to find vulnerability. There will be elements that will pull that out of shape. You know, like they need to happen simultaneously, I think. Um, mm. Which is which is why I think we've gotten to a point, and then we always get to a backlash because there's there's only one thing happening at a time. Mm. We're coming to the end of the hour that we have time for. Of course, I could speak to you for so much longer. Um, <laughs> what I know that you have some plans yourself of you know projects that you want to do or, or a podcast that you'd like to start. Uh, you know, particularly mm. to address that kind of stuff. So what? Uh, Anything to plug? <laughs> Not yet, but um, do keep an eye out because I am planning on uh, answering. I asked a bunch of uh, men and um, then subsequently a bunch of women. I asked men what they wanted to know that they felt they couldn't ask. Um, and I got some really interesting questions um, around that, about being so a man. Just this is. Give me a couple Give me a couple that you got, don't answer them. Give me a couple so that people can, you know, they're like, wetted. Wetted. Um, wetted. Watch their appetite. Um, yes. I really wish that people would bring back that pronunciation of the WH. I really don't yeah. it. But I just sound like a wanker whenever I do it. A Hi. wanker. A wanker. <laughs> <laughs> And actually, wanker would wanker like to pronounce it, wanker is so much more. You wanker. I'm just about to have a wank. I am now, of course, going to do this exclusively until I'm dead. Um. So, so one was um one question I got was um what do you do if your partner is more drunk than you and they want to have sex with you? Mm -hmm. um, I thought that was a great question. <laughs> I was like, yeah, like the, you know, the, the sort of general narrative is um, you don't sleep with someone who's drunk, but things are obviously more complicated than that. Or um, all the time. Exactly. That's right. Um, so that was a kind of practical one. And then, there was there was to, there were questions that were more sort of uh, philosophical, which is like, um, 
you know, essentially how how do we be allies is was a really, you know, various ways of asking that question, but how can we be allies to women? Um right. and uh and you know, queer people and people of colour I'm sure are included in that and people with disabilities and um so there's sort of a spectrum of like like you know practical concerns about how, you know how you behave. I also have I have a real interest in doing things like what it really is the difference between being gallant or chivalrous and and being actually polite and and how do you tell the difference between those two things? Those questions seem simple, but in application are actually quite complicated. And. And also very, I mean, not to be too simplistic about it, but um, and to an extent I, I kind of, I mean, well, this is what you're doing. You're saying, well, men need to do the work on this and I'm a man and I'm going to help men do the work on this, which is great because it means that women don't have to do the education. But, but yes, like it, it is difficult for some people to kind of navigate that um, insecurity, I suppose, that they feel between, well, well, will what I do be interpreted in, the wrong way and I don't mean like is me putting my hand on her ass gonna be interpreted the wrong way because clearly that's fucking assault but I mean like mm. if I if I open the door for her is she gonna I mean the door thing is so stupid but as far as I'm concerned if someone opens a door for me that's great if I get to the door first I open the door like I've I don't actually believe that women exist who turn around and scream in the faces of men you always hear like well I stopped mm. opening doors because women screamed in my face like no, Jack, that didn't happen. Um, but I do think that there are some examples where people, like where men would be uh, paranoid or fearful of, or like I don't want to be interpreted in the wrong way. And I guess the, the best kind of mm-hmm. answer to that is just like treat them like they're a dude, you know. If you, would you do it for a dude? If not, then don't do it for yeah, a Yeah, but then you also – but then you also go, well, maybe they would, maybe they wouldn't do it for a man for reasons that, um, mm, like maybe they wouldn't do it for a man, but they would do it for a, a person. They just wouldn't yeah. specifically do it for a man. I mean, I, I think that there's, there's things that, are, you see, like it's quite, quite, there's so much in it, you know, like there's, um, there's so much in these conversations that I think to really pull out what exactly is it, like you know, and I think it's about the reception, you know, I mean, I'm a theatre maker, so I'm interested in reception theory and how things are received, and that that's much, much more um, interesting to look at in conjunction with how things are intended. So, you know, you can intend something um, and it be received, like, I, to give you an example, me walking down the street now at night time, not that I'm allowed to because I'm in Melbourne, but if I were allowed to walk down the street at night time, I would walk I I would walk in exactly the same way that I used to, except that now that I'm now I'm aware if I'm behind a woman or someone who looks like a woman, um, or even a, a, a queer someone who looks like a queer man, I'm really careful um not to speed up behind them or I try and cross the road so that they know that I'm not a threat. Because I know that I, they would perceive me as a threat because I would. Um, 
I am exactly the same person. I'm doing exactly that same behavior. And the way that it's received um, is potentially through fear. That's also mm. my responsibility. So like, even though I've done nothing differently and like, I am never going to attack anybody <laughs> in the street at nighttime, I am aware of the fact that my presence is frightening for some people. And so I will try and mitigate it. These are the kinds of things that it's not about, you know, don't do a stupid behaviour. Like I think men men kind of know that, but they also have a sense, I think, that sometimes things that they are completely out of their, they wouldn't even, it wouldn't occur to them that someone is receiving something in a, in a fearful way or in a way that seems like it's sexist, just wouldn't occur to them. But it is, and they and they don't know what then to do because their intentions are good. So it's about taking both, taking both the reception and the intention and trying mm. to find ways of, of meeting them. Well, I promise all of you listeners that as more comes to hand of the plans that Teddy Dunn has to create a podcast or create work that, you know, is focused on the area of masculinity that I will let all of you know immediately where you can find it. Uh, Teddy Dunn, thank you so much for joining me for this very special bonus Patreon listener only episode of the Big Sister Hotline. Um, I'd love to have you back. I'd love to speak to you more. Uh, and let's go for a walk soon. As soon as ISO is over, I'll be there. Well, we can go for a walk before stage four finishes. It just has to be before eight o'clock. Before eight o'clock. Uh, see, I didn't, I didn't okay. get out of bed before eight o'clock for less than $10,000. Anyway, thank you very much. Uh, to all you beautiful listeners, thank you very much for being um, Patreon subscribers. I really appreciate your support, particularly during this very fucking tenuous financial time for everybody. It means the world to me. I, I hope that you enjoy the content that I'm providing. Um, and I hope that you enjoyed this bonus episode too. I really, really enjoyed having the conversation and it's left me with more questions than answers, which is always a good thing. So, uh, yes, thank you very much. Um, normal, uh, transmission will resume each week with the podcast. Please feel free to email me anytime you've got a question. I check my email a lot more than I check the Patreon page. It's clementine.ford at gmail.com. And I will be back with another special bonus episode in four weeks time from now. So thank you very much. 